0: On this episode of Wild in the Streets, Charles Bronson survives an attempt on his life and gets revenge on everybody in Sergio Salima's action-packed, violent city. Welcome to Wild in the Streets, a deep dive into the Eurocrime films of the 1970s and beyond. I'm Doug Tilly, and with me as always is the mechanic Liam O'Donnell. How are you doing today, Liam?
1: I'm um, pretty good. I he, he, Here's a big reveal. I've He's, never seen the original mechanic.
0: Well, here was, I wasn't going to mention this a little bit, little bit later, but a lot of what I read about the movie that we are going to be talking about today suggests a large influence specifically from John Borman's film Point Blank. Have you ever seen Point Blank before, I don't know, actually. I don't
1: think, I'm going to say probably not.
0: Lee Marvin, and yeah. but It's very well-known, very well-respected movie. One that I've always meant to have watched, but it was a bit of a blind spot. So last night, Liam, I watched Point Blank. How was it? It's fucking great. It's Yeah, very, very I'm good. sure it is. <laughs> I've, I've definitely heard of it, and it's on one of my
1: lists somewhere of things I mean to watch. But you know how I am with lists, Doug. Sure. I make them, and then I discard them and forget where I put them.
0: What I tell my wife all the time is that I'll, like, it'll be a movie on, like, Turner Classic Movies, or or even more so the Criterion Channel, right? I have this, this app, and it literally has nothing, pretty much nothing but masterpieces on it. And many of them I've never seen before. International films of all genres. I could sit there and just love it. Right? Every single movie, knowing that it's going to be good to great every single time. And I'll tell her, oh, no, I mean I don't have time to watch that. I have to watch garbage for my variety of podcasts.
1: <laughs> I mean, that is a hole that we've dug for
0: ourselves. Yes. <laughs> hey, you know what? We're in a better situation than some people, right? I mean, at least we get a variety of stuff. And honestly, most of the material we cover on our ver- various podcasts is of a pretty decent quality, including the movie that we're going to be talking about today. But sometimes I worry that I'm never going to be able to skirt away time to watch the real masterpieces that I've missed out on.
1: I mean, Doug, we are the masters of our own fate. If we need a version of this show called Masterpiece Theater, then I'm all about it. Let's fucking do it. Or or we can rip off one of our friends. Like, let's rip off our man over there at the uh, Shameless Picture Show, and we'll call it our uh, our shame show, where we only watch shit that we're embarrassed to admit we haven't seen. Uh, we could do whatever we want, buddy.
0: Yeah, I mean, I understand that. I just feel like it's like hearing us try to struggle through Bergman or something like that. Just trying to explain it in a way that hasn't been, you know, uh, touched over and and covered a thousand different times already. You know, us neophytes trying. To... I still think it's interesting. And I hope we do get to talk about Bergman at some point. Just like I hope we get to talk about, you know, all kinds of genres of film, Liam. Speaking of people who are in films. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, the person who is the main person in the film we're going to be talking about today, uh, Violent City, is the one Charles Bronson. Liam, is this an actor you're very familiar with? Uh, less familiar than you would think. How, how do you mean? Well,
1: um, I mostly only know him from the... Um,
0: oh, my brain just died. Yeah, please. Well, let me help you out. <laughs> Death Wish movies? Is that yes, Yes, but I've actually
1: <laughs> only ever seen Death Wish 1. Right, and then the ridiculous death wish that's entirely over the top.
0: Death wish three, that is.
1: Yes, those are the only ones I've seen in the series. And then I've se- saw I've seen um, Charles Bronson in uh, one of the we- Which one of the
0: uh, the uh, Sergio Leone Westerns. You are killing me, sir. I'm sorry. uh, Of course, you're talking about Once Upon a Time in the West. Yes. Greatest Western ever made. Right. (laughs) And so I've seen that. And
1: then I've seen him on something called, like, Rider on the Storm or something like that. I saw it at the drive-in. And that's it. I have really not... um, I mean, I'm aware he's in other things besides Death Wish. But I haven't had the time uh, to really find some of his other stuff. I think because I'm one of the few people I know who's not, like, a true Death Wish devotee. I know a lot of people who love those movies even when they start to get huh. bad they love the bad one they love the bad ones even more than they love the original uh but for I me mean, I, I certainly
0: love the third one best in the series because it's ridiculous as opposed to feeling like a political statement yeah so. yeah yeah yeah
1: i think <laughs> and so you know i i hate to say that maybe i don't appreciate art that other people like just because of its politics but i do find them to be a bummer and um and so like i, I gotta say Today's movie we're about to discuss is one of, uh, I think, maybe the second performance where I've thought, maybe I should watch more Charles Bronson movies. Like, I really, like, after this movie, though there are some problems with this movie, I thought, oh, maybe I kind of like Charles Bronson, because I'm just not sold on the Death Wish movies at all, you know?
0: You know, it's funny, we've talked a little bit about Death Wish on this show already, because Death Wish ended up being such a strong influence on of course, the Eurocrime yeah. movies that came after. But this movie that we're talking about today came well before Death Wish. Uh, yep. Though Charles Bronson was already kind of an international star, probably more internationally a star at this point in his career than he was a star in America, though Death Wish would make him kind of so iconic that he would basically play Charles Bronson roles for the rest of his career. But I wanted to talk to you about that idea. Actors who are uh, have a persona that they bring to a lot of their roles so that almost all of their movies feel like that person's movies. You know, I guess you could. <laughs> one modern example would be like Adam Sandler, right? He mostly sure. makes Adam Sandler style movies, but Chuck Norris makes Chuck Norris movies. There might be variety within them. Steven Seagal now, especially, makes just Steven Seagal movies. I think generally it's in like action and and those kind of genres that that you get that sort of consistency. What do you think about that, about actors who are not necessarily that interested in doing a variety of kinds of roles, but seem to have uh, carved out a very specific kind of persona that they show in movies?
1: I mean, I think you have to really like that persona. Um, there are... The problem is when you come up with a positive example, someone could argue that that doesn't count because it is so positive. So, so like with a positive example like Jackie Chan, someone could argue against it, right? They could say, well, sure, but he does this different, does that. You know what I mean? The yeah. best examples that are really solid examples of this sort of thing are tend to be bad, and it's hard to make the argument for someone who's good. As much as I agree, there is a Jackie Chan movie, there's also examples of him breaking that mold a little bit, and doing things a little bit different. Um, Whereas with Charles Bronson, I'm sure those examples exist. I don't know them. Uh, And and when it comes to Adam Sandler, we only know the ones where he breaks the mold, because those are the movies that that get critical attention, right? Like, he doesn't uncut gems. It's like, well, how many fucking Adam Sandler movies did we have to get before we were able to get and uncut gems, you know what I, I mean. Wonder,
0: you know, I wonder. I can only really think of examples in action and comedy. Those are the two genres right. because you yes. know Jerry Lewis movies certainly have. I mean, and you could even go back to because it's they're very persona based things like the Marx Brothers, right? I mean that they have a very specific style of kind of movies that they make. But then in action, you know, I could probably come up with another half dozen dozen examples even like lower level action stars like a michael dudikoff right i mean they have a kind of movie like it's not that necessarily the plots are exactly the same but certainly the kind of character that he plays in those movies seems to be because like don the dragon wilson that sort of shit as well then again you're the people who are watching those movies don't necessarily want a lot of variation in how those people are performing
1: well uh how about um uh, kevin costner i think you could argue. Interesting. You could argue – and maybe this is wrong, but I think some people would argue that past a certain point, he's just doing the same thing in in every movie. Yeah, absolutely. Or – or a uh, late career De Niro that he's mm. been playing the same character for a long time. Uh, maybe a little bit of variety recently actually, but technically like, you know, the variety of young or, or the one we've complained about on another version of this, uh, on this show is uh, Jack Nicholson that like when we watch those young Jack Nicholson movies, here's a man who seems to be doing all kinds of things. But sure. by the time you get to witches of Eastwick or, Uh, you know, Batman, or all kinds of stuff, he just starts to do... Jack Nicholson. You know, like Wolf is just a movie about Jack Nicholson becoming a werewolf. (laughs) You know what I
0: mean? (laughs) Honestly, (laughs) you describing that makes it sound a lot better than the actual movie. (laughs) (laughs) But
1: I think you understand what I'm saying here is that, like, there, there are examples of this where people later in their careers, maybe, or at certain times, seem to be doing the same thing. And they are doing, like, the thing about the Jack Nicholson character that he does... That becomes his persona is he can kind of do the same thing in comedy or in drama or out again later Al Pacino, right? You're watching Heat or you're watching, uh, what's that other one? It's Scent of a Woman. Isn't he in Scent of a Woman?
0: yeah yeah absolutely yeah yeah
1: yeah. He's, he's just yelling it's just get al pacino in your movie it doesn't matter if it's supposed to make you cry or make you laugh he's just gonna be al pacino you know what i mean and like again i don't know if that's always true i think now he's an I, absent landlord yeah 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 oh my god <laughs> look at the size of that ass yeah yeah you know um, uh yeah so i i in other words i i, I tend to think this is a, a Thing, as we're describing it, let's call it a phenomena, it's more often in action and comedy, but there are certain actors whose name becomes so sellable on its own that it feels like they become that in every movie, even in the most sincere, serious films. Whereas, and I want to be clear, this is different than a shtick. So here's an example that I think some people bring up that I think is actually wrong, and you tell me what you think about this. Sure. Samuel L. Jackson. Hmm. I think that Samuel Jackson has a gimmick and a shtick, but when asked to, he can play different things. Absolutely. It's just, it tends to be people only hire him to do this motherfucking snakes on this motherfucking plane. (laughs) That's why they hired him. But if you pay attention to the variety of roles, sometimes he's more quiet. Sometimes he's a little more laid back. I wouldn't claim he has a crazy amount of range the way that some other people do but I don't know that that's always needed not every actor needs to be a character
0: actor. That also you know? plays into the idea that it, it might be less the uh, it might be less what the actor intends right? And sure. More that they become famous for doing a certain kind of role and then they only get offered those kind of roles
1: I mean, afterwards. I mean the, 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 the Charles Bronson period right where we know him as doing those kind of characters isn't he a
0: little bit older at that point? Yeah, very much so. So even in this movie, he's in his late forties,
1: which is so funny because the whole movie people keep referring to him as a young man. Yeah, and I, don't be wrong; he has the body of a young man. I mean, I'm watching the movie going, "What fucking exercises is Charles Bronson Charles <laughs> doing to look like this at this age?" But you know, fucking Telly Savalas is walking around calling everyone a young man, and I'm like, all these people are the same age as he. What are we talking about right
0: Not now? Not all- Charles Bronson is a year older than Telly Savalas. The whole movie. <laughs> Telly Savalas just keeps
1: referring to people as young men who don't understand at their age what he's been through. And I'm like, bro, you are not – just because you're bald doesn't mean you're old, buddy.
0: <laughs> Before we get into the actual movie, I just want to just ask quickly, what do you think of Charles Bronson as an actor? I mean, we, we've been talking about – I don't necessarily think he has limited range. I mean, he, part of his – the persona that he exudes is very stoic, right? And doesn't show a lot of emotion. And that goes back to even his most famous movies like The Dirty Dozen and The Great Escape when he was like a supporting player. But when you bring that to the the lead character in these movies, I mean, he usually is someone involved in a lot of tragedy. But he isn't, even in this movie where he's like obsessed with this woman, he, he isn't exactly the most romantic seeming movie. What right. you uh, Sorry, yeah. romantic seeming actor. What What do you think of his... His performance just generally. Or his performance is, I should say. At least the ones that you're familiar with.
1: Well, that's the problem, right? Uh, if we're talking Once Upon a Time in ho- in uh, the West. Sorry, yeah. in Hollywood. It's Idiot. okay. Once upon- if we're talking what Once a picture. Of- I know. <laughs> if we're talking Once Upon a Time in the West, I think he's great, actually. I think he's perfect for that role. If we're talking about Death Wish, it's limited. It's not um, as it. I-, I think a lot of people find him very engaging in those movies. And I- for whatever reason, I don't. Now, Maybe I'm just biased, you know, and I need to like go back in with a less of a less of a a critical eye. But to me, he's sort of flat in those movies. Uh, In this movie, again, I wouldn't he's you know, he's not transforming, but does is he able to pull off some things that I think are actually kind of subtle? Yeah. Like and like I said, this is the first movie since the first time I saw Once Upon a Time in the West. This is the first movie I've seen in a while where I was like really impressed by him. And again, not because I think he's. Uh, completely dynamic but I think there's a little more texture to what he's doing here while still being a swaggering tough guy like the essence of what people came to love him for is in this movie but there's a little bit of emotion and there's a little bit of vulnerability at times that I believed and I I didn't think was uh, awkward at all you know um, I don't know that that's as present in the Death Wish movies but maybe I'm, I have a bad memory I don't know
0: I and mean, it's interesting also that these are both dubbed performances—the ones that you mentioned, right? Once about Once a time in the West, and this particular film. And I think he does a good job dubbing his performance here. And um, it, it, it's something we'll talk about, I think, when we get into the movie. In fact, why don't we do that right now? Let us take a break. When we return, we're going to talk about 1970s Violent City. Why is it whenever I'm with you, I always end up in the middle of blood and violence? Well, it happens. The whole
1: city is full of blood and violence. <laughs>
0: After being double-crossed by his mistress and barely escaping a murder attempt, a hitman sets out to take his revenge on the woman and the mob boss who put her up to it. It's 1970s Violent City, a.k.a. The Final Shot, a.k.a. The Family, uh, for its post-Godfather re-release. And in Italian, Cita Voia Violenta, uh, it stars, of course, the great Charles Bronson, Telly Savalas, and, as usual in a lot of Charles Bronson movies, his uh, wife at the time, Jill Ireland. This is... a uh, Uh, Directed by Sergio Salima He's a director that we've actually encountered on Wild in the Streets before He directed Revolver, the Oliver Reed And uh, recent, uh, as at the time of this recording Recent Birthday Boy Fabio Testi Film that we enjoyed very much Also the director of some really wonderful spaghetti westerns Ones that I really enjoy Including Run Man, Run with Thomas Melian uh, As well as some spy thrillers in the 60s You know, he did the usual run of Different genres that he had to switch to Starting with Sword and Sandal, Peplum movies that he wrote back in the 50s, moving into spy movies, into westerns, and then into Eurocrime movies. Uh, this one is actually was based on a story written by Massimo Darita, who we've seen several times in this podcast already. And it was one of the writers of Street Law. But the screenplay itself has a lot of different names on it. But one of the interesting ones is Lena uh, Wirkmüller, uh, who worked with the director on rewriting the script for this. She's best known for directing Swept Away uh, from 1974 and Seven Beauties from 1975, both really critically beloved movies. Swept Away, of course, remade, Liam, by Guy Ritchie, starring Madonna. Remember Swept Away?
1: Yeah, no thank you. <laughs> uh,
0: a lot of cast members here probably recognizable in the Euro Spy genre, but uh, really the focus of this is Charles Bronson himself playing a very stoic, very kind of quiet performance. Uh, and as I mentioned in the opening segment as well, This movie seems to be very influenced by a lot of film noir, as you mentioned, Liam, but also by kind of the tough guy movies that were popular in the late 60s, specifically Point Blank. This movie doesn't have a lot that it's borrowing from that movie outside of the idea that basically someone is double-crossed at the beginning and spends the rest of the movie kind of silently getting revenge. Uh, And also there's kind of the flashback format of it, though it's not nearly as experimental as as Point Blank is. So let's uh, start, Liam. Before I ask you your thoughts on this movie generally... Uh, I want to tell you, Nicholas Winding Refn, um, he cites Violent City as his favorite Italian genre film. What do you think about that?
1: Uh, That's probably not a surprise. Why is that? Um, Well, because I think it's uh, very well done in a lot of ways, uh, and it's mildly misogynistic. So both Mm. of the things remind me of him. Interesting. Now, what, what do we
0: think about this Nicholas Refn?
1: I don't, I I actually don't know what to, I'll
0: be honest, I really don't
1: actually know (laughs) what to think of him.
0: I don't know what that means. What do you mean you don't know what to think? You've seen Drive, certainly. Yeah. Have you seen any of his other films?
1: Yeah. The Pusher Trilogy? Yeah, I've seen, uh, you know, I've only seen one film of the Pusher Trilogy. Right. Okay. Uh, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know a a ton about him, but he kind of strikes me at least in his films as being at least uh, very male focused in a lot
0: of his movies. Well, that's interesting to say because one of his more famous movies, neon uh, demon. Yeah. is very female focused and, right. and it's supposed to be, I guess, at least partially based on his own wife's experience in the uh, fashion industry. Sure. <laughs> Did you see that clip going around recently? I, it must be from years ago at this point. So he's talking about Only God Forgives, and he's talking he's talking about how it's a masterpiece, and basically William Freak can start, tries to call an ambulance for how crazy he's being about calling. He's like, that's a masterpiece? What do you, If that's masterpiece, what do you think that Citizen Kane is, right? He's just totally ripping into this dude who has so much self-importance. Oh, I'm like you. I have no regrets about Only God Forgives. I think it's a masterpiece, and it is. I just didn't make it very expensive. Is there a
1: doctor in the house? We... we- we need to get a medic in here. Is there is there a doctor around? <laughs> I just
0: didn't make. You, I, if you I, think that's a masterpiece, inex- what is Citizen Kane? It's great, but it's very. In, it was an inexpensive movie, so financially. Who gives a shit? I like I like Reffin because he loves genre movies and preserving them. But as a person, he seems like one of the biggest tools
1: in the world. Yeah, I mean that's. Uh, Because I haven't um, interacted with him directly, I try not to be too judgmental, but he doesn't
0: seem cool to me. He certainly thinks that he's cool. Anyway, I mean, he he obviously, he he doesn't give a shit about what people like us think about him, which uh, good on him. Liam, what did you think of 1970s Violent City?
1: Uh, I thought it was really great for the most part. Um, It's, I like the uh the ways that it's sort of a throwback to film noir there's sort of a a a, a, a lovelorn man um uh, with a woman who it's unclear if she is good or bad for him and he is continually unsure of where he stands and 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 right. what values are at play he's a he's a known killer he's sort of a, a badass uh uh, figure, but he's also very vulnerable emotionally, you know, and, and, uh, uh, I like that aspect of it. I loved, uh, Telly Savalas in it. Um, he's so smarmy and awful. He's like the perfect bad guy in a lot of Wait, ways. What do you,
0: what do you think about Telly Savalas generally? Are you a fan of him as an actor?
1: Uh, I don't really know him outside of this and uh, Horror Express. I'm not a huge... He's great in Horror Express. By so saying. fucking good. Uh, so I think I like him, but a lot of his biggest roles, uh, like, I I don't really Kojak. know. Kojak. I don't really know Kojak very well. I don't know the... Isn't he in The King
0: and I? Uh, I think you're thinking of Yul Brenner. <laughs> oh, that's right. I don't right. know if he's in the King.
1: <laughs> what else is Telly Savalas in? He's in something big besides Kojak. right? He's
0: in the Dirty Dozen. Uh, oh which, also yes. With Charles Bronson.
1: Oh, you know what? I do like him. And uh, there you go. Another and Telly George Savalas. Kennedy. I'm sure
0: we're going to be featuring it on our George Kennedy themed podcast. Another that's
1: Telly Savalas so. and Charles Bronson role. I forgot that I do like is the Dirty Dozen. Um, although I watched it a long time ago, so I you know I don't have like a, 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 a fresh. Perspective on it at sure. the time, I really liked it, um, but I, you know, I feel like Telly Savalas is someone who I've only seen in a few things, so it's hard to know. But if I'm just focusing on this movie, he's fucking great. He's so awful in it, which is like <laughs> what you want him to be. Um, and so there's a lot of aspects of this that I like, but there's two things about it I don't like. The most obvious, we should just say, is that there's a constant theme of uh, of because uh, Charles Bronson's character.
0: Kevin is that his name? Jeff Heston. Jeff, it's re- literally on the page. Oh, me. I wasn't looking. Sorry, <laughs> ah, Kevin. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah there's Kevin. Charles. Ponson. Look, Kevin. yo, bro, bro. Hey, Kevin, all, what are you doing over here, bud? Bro, all the all
1: the white dude <laughs> names just run together for me. I can't tell them apart. So his name is Jeff, which is the least interesting name for an international hitman that I've ever. I would heard say in my second
0: life. least interesting after Kevin.
1: Yeah, that's fair. Well, that's what I'm saying. I just figured it was some boring white dude name. Every time someone says Jeff in this movie, dude, I straight up thought, that can't be right. That's not his name, right? His name isn't Jeff. People don't go like, I need you to murder these people, Jeff. Like, it just doesn't make sense to me. So, okay. uh, Sorry, let me back up a little bit here and just say, um, (laughs) everything about that makes me laugh. Uh, Jeff is, you know, he's in love with this woman, apparently, who has betrayed him or possibly not betrayed him a number of times, and the way that he apparently is going to work through those feelings is uh, sexual violence, and uh, this is a theme not just in one uncomfortable scene that, by the way, ends in a very miscalculated joke is how we decided to end that scene, Uh, but we're going to bring it up two more times, and it just... It doesn't work for me, Doug. And don't be wrong. We went into this podcast straight up knowing that in covering these movies, one of the things we would have to deal with is both intimate partner violence and sexual violence, right? That those were going to come up. But I still believe, rightly or wrongly, that there are ways to portray those things that can work. Now, you could argue, well, even if they work narratively, you should never do it because – You know, any number of reasons about exploitation. And I'm okay with that argument. I'm not saying that's wrong. But I think that even if you think that these are tools that shouldn't be out of the quiver of the storyteller, the way that they're used in this movie is gross top to
0: bottom. It's It's kind of the worst case scenario where it's one of those situations where he is forcing himself on her and then she'll start to like it, right? I mean, yes. that's how it's presented yes. again and again. Yes.
1: So that theme, considering how much of the movie revolves around her portrayal of him, there's also a weird like male revenge thing going on Absolutely. there that's super gross. But then also her being as a femme fatale. If we're going to get a femme fatale, this woman who's brought about the ruin of our main character, then have her be fully in control of her own agency. But instead, we have to both blame her for his life being ruined and then see her continually also being manipulated by stronger men. And, I don't like that. I if you're going to give me a villainous, then give me a real villainous that I can be proud of. You know, someone who, like, is just really down and dirty and is doing the thing. And instead, it's like, you know, oh, well, she doesn't mean harm, but she just can't help but fucking destroy every man around her, regardless of what her intentions
0: are. I do think that by the end, you know, that villainous aspect of her. Is really concrete, right? Where we see that even the man that she's used now to get to the top, that she's going to basically just push him aside because it was all a power play. But it, it the way that her character reacts to things, even in her final moments, there's a sensitivity there that makes you think, oh, so she's just like – she, like you said, she's just out to destroy men for the fun of it.
1: It just doesn't – it. <laughs> To me, it feels like a very male version, a very male centric version of what this character could be.
0: I mean, I should note, of course, that I just mentioned again, this is not in any way uh, uh, supposed to be a response, really, to your your um, difficulty here, which is one that I share, that, that I really found unpleasant, in it, that a woman helped rewrite this movie. Right, I, and
1: for whatever reason, for my for my view, I just think that it's it wants to have its cake and eat it too and it doesn't sure. it doesn't work um not that you can't have a story of a doomed relationship in which both the man and the woman are sympathetic you can but then write it that way it i just think that um the, having her be both nefarious in some ways and then sympathetic in others it just doesn't work for this particular story. And I don't think that's an impossible thing to do. It just didn't work for me. But that being said, the performance is great. I just think it's more the writing of the character that is a, a problem for me.
0: So what um, was the second thing that you didn't... That was, the, that was the second thing. Oh, so okay. the
1: vi- the sexual violence, which I think... Even if you feel you need to do it one time, you don't need to do it three times. And then the way that they do it is the worst case scenario of doing it. But then also just the portrayal of this character, for my taste, I'd rather her either be more sympathetic than she is or to be a little bit stronger. There's, there's, a, there's a sense in which when there is that final sort of reveal where she's throwing off this dude at the end, it still feels to me almost like you're like oh she's finally sticking up for herself a little bit just because it's she, there's all this like sense of uh of vulnerability going on that is feigned or, or something I don't know so it, it felt just, like
0: a switch in her character as opposed to what she was been doing the entire exact
1: exactly movie. exactly and right. and and so and I think it's it, it partly does that in order to maintain that sense of mystery but I don't think this movie needs a sense of mystery it, for me personally um it, at least not about that character's motivations.
0: Th- that This issue that, that we're both talking about is something that some people would probably be unable to overcome in this movie. But let's just yes. table it for the moment to talk about kind of the movie as a whole because that's comparatively a smaller part of it. Uh, this movie opens with a car chase scene uh, that takes place in the Virgin Islands. It actually opens basically with a montage of Charles Bronson and Jill Ireland enjoying a vacation together, and then he notices that they're being followed, and this turns into a car chase scene. We talked a little bit about car chases on our various podcasts for Cinema S'mores Board. What did you think of this one?
1: Liam? Uh, I liked it. It was it's um, it's not always as exciting as some of the other ones we've seen, you know, uh, but I really liked the little uh the the trying to deal with the narrowness of the roads and yes. the blockages and stuff mm-hmm. a lot of that stuff I thought was really smart and well done and honestly felt real right like as opposed to him just like jumping over things every few minutes you know uh, I much prefer this kind of cat and mouse chase thing I, I thought it was very well done
0: I really love it. Like I think it's actually an amazing car chase for the most part, but I do have to say it's marred a little bit by the back projection work that it keeps switching to. That's true. That's, just, that's true. Just a reality of the era in which it was made. I know some people are not bothered by that at all. I recently been watching a lot of early Bond movies where of course that's kind of like one of those prototypical examples of of every car chase has something like that. But this one it just gets it just I just find it a little bit distracting. That said, it's a dynamite fucking scene to open this movie with. It's it's funny that we've watched a lot of these Eurocrime movies so far, but they don't have a lot of bravura uh, action sequences up to this point. But this movie has a few of them, uh, and it really kind of kicks things into high gear right away. And also, uh, no dialogue at all, right? You, you don't even hear Charles Bronson's voice until like eleven or twelve minutes into the movie.
1: Yeah, totally. But it's you know what's you don't know what's going on directly, but you understand what's happening, and I it's I, I just felt like it was very well, very effective.
0: It sets it up so Charles Bronson is You know he, he lets Jill Ireland's character out of the car He drives on a little bit more He encounters someone that he knows who then Shoots him he's been double crossed Then we find out later that she leaves With the person who shoots him uh, kind of Confirming that she was part of the double cross Very similar to the way that, uh, that Point Blank begins as well Which has a very similar kind of double cross Which is where the kind of comparisons kind of uh, Enter into it Um and from there, it's very much a revenge story. He manages to, to, manages to survive, <laughs> is in a, a hospital, basically bandaged up like the mummy, but he returns, and then the rest of the movie is him trying to track down both the person who shot him and her, and then also the, hires, uh, the higher up in the family that uh, were involved in it. Uh, any other sequences? I mean, we're going to talk about the final, the ending part of it in just a little bit. Any other action sequences in the movie stick out to you?
1: Uh, I think the when he is getting revenge on uh, the man who shot him uh, at the race, yeah. it's not super exciting, but there's a certain like tension to it about him getting caught, about him making the shot. I really liked it. The only part of it that feels dumb is the uh, grand finale when the car j- goes through a wall. Where'd that fucking wall come from? <laughs>
0: He's in the middle of a field. Yeah. <laughs> It's not it's only a, a
1: wall. Like there's two kids in front of the wall for some it's reason. It's a it's a magical shot. I love the shot of it going through the wall, but it's utterly unjustified <laughs> in in the movie itself.
0: There's it a feeling like like they maybe they shot it in a way that it's just like, well, even if they flip the car over, we got to have it explode, but it's not just going to explode for no reason. So let's make it crash through a brick fucking wall.
1: It felt to me like. It could have also been they cut scene, like the car's out of control down the hill, and then it turns and turns into a neighborhood. That would work too. <laughs> but instead, we see the car go off the road and then go through the wall. And I'm like, "There's at least four shots missing from this sequence to justify this wall shot."
0: Liam, this is a movie that is actually very well loved, as I already mentioned. Nicholas uh, Winning uh cites it, and and it, it actually recently, I think, got a, a uh, Blu-ray release uh, that, that was very well regarded. But maybe the thing that this movie is most well-known for is its soundtrack. Ennio Morricone uh, does the soundtrack. Yeah. Bits of it were used in Django Unchained by Quentin Tarantino. Uh, what did you think of the soundtrack to Violent City?
1: It's great. It's noticeable. Saying it's noticeable probably for some people is a bad thing. Like right, It's invasive or something. And that's not what I mean. It's very noticeable because it's so good. And there are moments where... It's haunting in a very sort of intense way. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I just – I was immediately impressed by it. Um, and I don't I, – this is sort of maybe like a very pedestrian thing to admit – Unless a soundtrack is super excellent or super terrible, I don't often pay attention. You know what I mean? Like I might pay attention to a needle drop where we're hearing a pop song, but like the general soundtrack, I don't always notice it. Uh, I probably should pay more attention than I do, but oftentimes I'm so sucked into what I'm watching, it's not registering with me. And there are moments like that in this film, but there are a lot more moments where I'm like this fucking music is like literally like that. I was noticing how much the music was enhancing my experience. I just, I just think it's really great enough that like, I need to find a record of this soundtrack. Honestly, I want to listen to it later.
0: Isn't a movie score. It's an interesting thing to think about, right? It, it, you could take the approach that if you notice it, then it's not doing its job because it's supposed to be kind of subtly pushing your emotions and heightening things as opposed to distracting from things. But most of the more famous scores, are ones that are very bombastic and like from Conan the barbarian or back to the future or, or the star Wars movies in particular. So it's very much a case where you notice them all the time.
1: Yeah. And I, I, I'm not of the mindset that you shouldn't notice them per se, but then again, I don't know in the movies where I didn't notice them, if that makes them bad either. So I guess that's a weird negotiation to make is to say like, It's good if you notice them, but I don't think it's bad if you don't, if that makes sense.
0: We'll definitely play some of the uh, music. Um, We'll play it at the end of the podcast. And let's play a little bit of it right here for those who haven't heard some of the music. It is, yeah, it's one of the superior soundtracks, certainly in the Eurocrime films that we've covered so far. And one that really... It, it, it's varied enough that it never feels like it's just the same theme over and over, which is something that I think we encountered in Street Lock quite a bit, where it, the music is great, but it's basically a lot of the same stuff. This is Morcone. It feels kind of spaghetti westernish at times, too, uh, which maybe is just because of that's where I still connect Morricone, uh the most with. Uh, we've talked a lot already about the misogyny in it. I don't think we need to uh, focus any more uh, on it, um, but it, it is something that... You, it was interesting what you brought up, which is it was a concern that we had about these eurocrime movies generally, like that and the political side of things, tying this into the politics that we've talked about at length in other eurocrime movies, what did you see in the politics of this film like th- does this take a, a particular stance one way or the other uh, as far as you could see
1: I don't I mean other than just a general feeling of worrying about the politics of the possible misogyny and I, and let's be clear i I, I sense this undercurrent uh, there, but the movie isn't that direct. I think it wants you to see the tension between these two characters as a personal issue and suggesting right. that this is a comment on the larger political nature of, of of gender. I think the writers of the movie would be not a fan of that take. I don't think the movie wants it to be that, but it, it's hard not to view it and think of it that way, maybe just because it's 2022, I don't know. Outside of that, these are just criminals treating each other certain ways. There's a little bit of commentary on modernization, um, but everything that uh, the, uh, Telly Savalas' character says, uh, Mr. Ward says, about the drawbacks of the modern world and compared to the, the basicness of, of the past, it all feels like bullshit, right? Like the movie very much is like, Come on. You know, you're going to complain that now you own the bank that you used to rob? What I mean, I thought that was a really here?
0: interesting moment, though, right? Just the idea that he talks about how he's trying to clean his business up. So he's just doing the exact same thing as he did before, but in ways that are socially acceptable. So, yeah, the bank that he robbed before, now he's on the board of directors of.
1: The other problem for me with it, Doug, actually, was that... Um... It's more Italian. It's supposed to be an American film,
0: right? It's set in America. That's a notable thing, by the way. We haven't really mentioned that it yeah, takes we place should... in New Orleans. Uh, right. And the reason that the director took this role, I mean, you know, obviously an Italian director, Sergio Salima, is specifically because he wanted to shoot in America.
1: And so the thing is set in New Orleans. Uh, side note, I was going to say this later, but we'll say it now. This is the least New Orleans, New Orleans movie I've ever seen in my life. Like well, you there, said, are the, there
0: are those scenes of that party that looks like it comes right out of fucking... Uh, <laughs> like, uh, uh, yeah, uh, but that's not... When people shoot in New Orleans,
1: Doug... They like take an accent, like I swear to God, every movie that's shot in New Orleans, people are just walking around being like, "Ah, oh, you know, like like just faking the accent and shit." Like, no, I want to hear more about your New Orleans. No, I'm not accent. doing it. I'm not doing it. But yeah, but you know what I mean? Like, there's a sense in which directors who want to shoot in New Orleans are like, "Hey guys, guess what? We're in New fucking Orleans. Can you smell the po boys, Huh? You know where we are? We're in New Orleans. And this movie's kind of like, yeah, I don't know. Here's some trees and a cool house, but it's not like." Present And the characters, I mean, there is an area of a, a, a Nolan's accent in this whole fucking film. And that's like crazy to me that like there's no effort to like put it forward. And then the whole image of like these mobsters are trying to go corporate. uh That wasn't as big. It wasn't completely absent from the U.S. history, but it was less prevalent than it was in Italy at the time. And I think so-
0: certainly so. But I mean, don't you feel like then that it actually has aged quite well because it feels much more modern because that's yes. obviously more common these days.
1: Well, I only in the sense that it is and it isn't, in the sense that, like, I would say it's not more common because in this country, the criminals didn't have to go corporate. The corporations were already criminals. Right, right. And, and, and being a mobster, I mean – most of these, uh, the most of the corporate criminals are are too white bread to qualify as mobsters. Honestly, um, the mobsters were all fucking immigrants, man. So they couldn't get the sort of advantages that these people could get. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I mean I, it, that the way it's played out, the way it's portrayed in the film feels more Italian than American, even though it's set in America, all the characters are very American, uh, and it's and w- once he starts running around from the cops, you very much know you're in, in New Orleans, you know? Or when he goes to visit her at the country house, I swear to God, that looked like the house where they shot, uh, like, Forrest Gump or something like that, you know? <laughs> uh, but, but like, yeah, you, you know, there, there, there are parts of the plot that are a weird fit for the U.S., but it's it's kind of cool in another way that they shot in New Orleans because you don't see a lot of movies like this in New in that setting, you know?
0: Yeah. And it, there is something kind of always unique about Italian directors shooting, especially genre directors shooting in the States. It reminded me a little bit about the Beyond, yeah. the Lucio Poci's yeah. movie, which also takes place in New Orleans. Probably not too I mean, it it, it I guess it investigates some of the uh culture around it a little bit more but not really uh, uh Sergio Salima uh, himself said about he said about his movies that this film repeats a primary thematic concern of his films that of the encounter and struggle between the individual and the society which is all around him and the way he reacts to it uh what do you do you think about that did you feel, feel like this that's kind of the major theme of this movie that basically Charles Bronson's character um is uh it, it's really about him against society as a whole, as opposed to just these criminal characters.
1: Huh, that's interesting. I didn't pick up as much on that, per se. I, I guess the feeling is that th- there's a feeling of him, that they need him to, like, join... The organization is that I, I I don't know. What do you think, Doug? G- give me your response because I wasn't. This one's was a about little difficult,
0: right? Because what we see, I guess part of the, what that's trying to say is the idea that the cleaning of criminal organizations means that they're more integrated into society. So basically, there's no way for him to abandon his life of being a criminal, right? Sure. It seems at the beginning of the movie that he wants to get out of the business, but everywhere you know they just keep trying to pull him back in that sort of thing. Uh, and he just he just wants to have it seems. His character just wants to have a calm life with this beautiful woman and and get away from all of it. But the reality is, you know, as soon as he gets off the plane at the airport to come back to the United States, like the first thing he encounters is someone trying to pull him back into the business. And when he refuses, then they force him back into it. So, I mean, I guess I could see that. I don't know if it's very reflective of an everyday experience outside of the crushing reality that society is against us at all times. But I don't think we need a movie to tell us that, Leo.
1: No, Um, (laughs) but also I I, I think I'm so distracted by the way the film keeps circling around to his relationship that it's hard for me to think of the larger social implications outside of the gender politics of his relationship.
0: Liam, this uh, movie is bookended by two action sequences, uh, the car chase, which we've already talked about, and then the ending of the film, Charles Bronson's character Jeff has vanished, and the femme fatale of the film, Vanessa Shelton, played by Jill Ireland, she's basically... Risen to the top. She is almost literally rising to the top because she's getting into an elevator where she's going to face the board at the top, where she's going to be taking power, basically, uh taking Telly Savalas' uh position as the head of this crime family, basically. Uh and as her and her uh and the person who helped her along are in this elevator, what happens?
1: Well, first the, her uh her uh, treacherous uh, lover, lawyer guy, who acts right. like he's above it all. He starts getting shot. He gets shot, good, good, five or six times actually in a slow motion sequence that's really intense. But yeah, has yeah. like, there's no big bang. It's like the slow tuk of the yeah. of the bullet going through exactly. the glass, and then she uh, basically presses herself against the glass and begs him. To do it quickly, to not let her suffer, and Which he is an does
0: something that happened earlier in the film as well. Yeah,
1: and he does. He shoots her right in the head, and uh, and then that's it. And then he just waits for the cops to find him to kill him, so he can you know uh, suicide by cop. Uh, and he and he basically insults this cop into killing him. You must be a rookie, you know. Get a yeah, real cop yeah. up here. You
0: to shoot me, or I'm going to shoot you. That's so. as much of a Charles Brown. And then he, uh, and then
1: he shots, shoots him six times. By the way, it's <laughs> yeah. Crazy. Well,
0: I mean, he's a cop. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
1: I can't help but think about this movie in the context, you know, part of what we're talking about with these Polizia Tecci movies is them as a response to the years of lead, you know, all this crazy killing and, and yeah, yeah. violence in Italy. But one of the things that these movies always tend to ignore is how much of the stuff was like fueled by the conflicts between leftists and fascists, sure. you know, yeah. and the fascists, of course, being actually funded by the government and uh, – and uh and the u.s and the cia and stuff and so like f- you know the, the the i'm just returning to this whole social idea that the director had and it's just hard for me to connect with it because i think it it, it again just doesn't feel like it's what's going on is this idea like the whole world is becoming criminalized so how could he escape from it i'm like Ugh, God, all right it's something <laughs> about it like kind of bums me out i don't know
0: Uh, This is from Roberto Curti's Italian uh, crime filmography, which we've cited many times uh, on this podcast, uh, speaking specifically about this sequence. Here, Salima's use of slow motion and lack of sound, we only hear the tiny silencer shots that break the glass walls and hit the victims, caught in their ascending coffin. The instrument of social climbing becomes a deadly cage, expands and amplifies suspended time with truly remarkable results. I think that image, the idea that, that as they're raising up in this elevator, it's literally them rising up in the social strata. No. Yeah. 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 I do think that's, that is a really interesting interpretation of it. I also love how that sequence ends with the elevator opening right into the boardroom and their corpses just laying there. (laughs) Especially
1: because the board seems just like, not that they're not kind of horrified, but they all just rush forward to get a look. Like they're kind of curious, like what's going on? You know, there's some part of that that I felt felt very voyeuristic to me that I really appreciated as well.
0: So you mentioned it. You mentioned Charles Bronson's character. He basically uh, suicides by cop at the end of the movie. Uh, what did you think of that as an ending for him generally? You kind of sound like you didn't feel like the movie earned the, that that moment necessarily.
1: No, I think it's fine. I mean, I I, uh, I don't know that there was anything else there. Um, and I do. Uh, I I don't know. I think it worked. I I kind of liked that he basically bullies the cop into killing him. I, I felt that kind of worked for the character, actually. Um, but but you know the the whole thing because my anxiety about the movie is the ways that it, it's it feels despite the involvement of of female voices, it still feels a bit like a male fantasy. The idea that like now he's like, now I'm going to get the cops to kill me. So there's a part of it that kind of made me roll my eyes a little bit. But on the other hand, like there's no other good way to end it. And I do like the fact that then the cop freaks out and shoots all his bullets at him. It's like, so kind of
0: fitting, you know, (laughs) Uh, Liam uh, in the scope of the movies that we've watched so far for this podcast, even with the sexual violence, I, I think this might be one of the best films. It's that so good. I
1: mean, that's why I, I, one of the reasons I'm so concerned about the sexual violence, Doug, is because the rest of the movie is so good yeah. that I don't want there to be anything. I I want to love this movie top to bottom and I can't completely love it, but also those moments are not so gross that then I hate the movie. I think this movie is really good.
0: Yeah, it's really good. It's extremely entertaining. Very well shot has an amazing soundtrack at least two great action sequences in it Liam any final thoughts on 1970s violent city
1: I mean obviously everyone should you know be aware of the content warning and decide for themselves if that's going to ruin the movie for them or not but if it's not then I highly recommend it and it again like uh, uh I know there are probably a lot of listeners who are horrified that I'm not already in love with Charles Bronson and Telly Savalas but uh As someone who isn't, I found them both really great in this movie. I was just really blown away by how much of this movie is so well done and even well acted. Like sometimes these movies, Doug, whether we've talked about, they don't need the perfect performances to work as a movie. Right, like someone could just sort of be there and be good enough, and the movie's exciting and and whatever enough to work. But this movie, like, it doesn't just rely on action and explosions or even like uh, gory, bloody sort of shoot 'em ups. You know, it it has a lot more like character and plot going on, and it really works. And the moments where the big reveal that she's married to Mister Ward and he's in the office. Sure, I think Charles Bronson fucking nailed it, and so did Telly Savalas. The look at his face of like oh, right, you know her, don't you? Fuck you, man! <laughs> I know, no, right? I so know.
0: good. I also love Telly Savalas's uh, death scene in this, yes, where agreed. he's like, basically talking his way through, trying to manipulate Charles Bronson's character, knowing, finally figuring out that he can't do it, and and then his death is so sudden as well. Uh, yeah, very entertaining stuff. As I already mentioned, this is a, there's been a recent Blu-ray release, actually a three-disc, I believe, uh, collection uh, for Violent City recently through Kino Lorber, super special edition commentary special features uh, multiple cuts the version of this movie that we saw is the uncut italian version but it's with the english dub except for the scenes that had never been dubbed so th- those are just featured in italian with subtitles but i feel like we've seen the most complete version It uh, it doesn't feel like one i think there's eight minutes cut out of the usual english language version but if you want to check out that blu-ray 2k and i think there's a 4k scan of the original italian version that's available uh, on your uh uh, blu-ray provider of choice liam on the next episode of wild in the streets we're going to be looking at a much less beloved or maybe at least well-known euro crime film right near the end of the uh, genre's heyday it's 1980s madness directed by fernando de leo who we've heard of uh, several times on this podcast and starring andy warhol star joe d'alessandro this film was reportedly shot in just 12 days I think I had heard of it before. I've never seen it, uh, but I always considered it a, a, or heard of it as being a horror movie and maybe the fact that it's called Madness and its poster has a big butcher knife. Uh, that, that that makes the, kind of reinforces that idea. Uh, excitedly, I'm to check out 1980s Madness on the next episode.
1: Yeah, I, I I because I don't know much about it, I'm pretty excited to see what it's all about.
0: I, I've always been very curious about Joe D'Alessandro as a personality. Uh, I've seen him in, in not only the Annie Warhol movies, Andy Warhol directed, but also the um, uh, the horror films from the mid '70s. Andy Warhol's Dracula and Frankenstein, where Joe D'Alessandro is very memorable uh, in those movies as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm really looking forward to checking it out uh, again. It, it's the and we've only talked about one other 1980 Eurocrime movie. That's uh, that would be Contraband, the uh, the Lucio Fulci movie. So seeing it, it kind of its final days and seeing how it's evolved, considering that you know this movie is from 1970, a decade later, it'll be interesting to see. If people want to check out more episodes of Wild in the Streets or other podcasts that we uh, put out into the world, what's the best way for them to do so?
1: Well, they can, of course, head to our website, Doug, uh, cinemasportexport.com, where uh, we have our whole archive, and that includes all the different shows we do, from Wild in the Streets to uh, How Do You Do Fellow Kids, praising Cain, uh, whatever happened to Vic Diaz, and we do our own stunts, um, and, and a bunch of other ones too. Joe Dawowski, we do a lot of things over here, Doug, that people should check out. Uh, Some might say
0: too many. <laughs> oh yeah, that's possible.
1: Uh, if you head to CinePunks.com, that's C-I-N-E-P-U-N-X.com, they can not only check out the latest episodes of this podcast, but a whole family of podcasts, including uh, Twitch of the Death Nerve, The Carnage Report, um, uh, The Shameless Picture Show, uh, Horror Business, a whole bunch of stuff over there, plus a store a merch store we don't have any merch in there yet will we at some point we might who knows let's Ooh. see we'll, we'll see Ooh. what happens uh and of course they can check out both cinepunks and cinema Smorgs board on social media cinema Smorgs Board is on twitter at cinema smorg s-m-o-r-g and cinepunks is on twitter facebook and instagram c-i-n-e-p-u-n-x
0: and cinepunks has a patreon as well if you want to help support the show or other podcasts provided and other content Uh, via CinePunks. Uh, There's links to it on the CinePunks website. Liam and I recently did a special Cinema Smorgasbord episode for the Patreon, uh, focused on us going track by track through the Misfits album Walk Among Us. uh, A little bit out of my wheelhouse, Liam, but I think it turned out really well. And uh, we're hoping to get together very soon for another special Patreon episode. So if this is something you enjoy listening to, Um, And you just like hearing us (laughs) Talk about (laughs) Stuff that we do and don't have expertise in Then you can check that out over at Is it patreon.com slash cinepunks That is correct You can check that out when you want You can also follow Liam on Twitter At Liam Rules That's R-U-L-Z And I'm on there as well At Doug underscore Tilly That's T-I-L-L-E-Y But for now Liam We need to close that Eurocrime bag For another week We're going to be back very soon With 1980s madness Good night everybody night night (laughs)